0: Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com.
1: Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show.
2: We've already seen, you know, these types of situations where government puts pressure on companies to take content down. That can lead to really broad policies that sometimes take down speech that, you know, many people would want to be able to hear
1: Who will be the arbiter of free speech and misinformation online? The Supreme Court weighs in. It's Monday, February 26th, and this is Here and Now, Anytime. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, primary updates from South Carolina and Michigan – where some frustrated Democrats will vote for uncommitted instead of for President Biden. And if the recent headlines about in vitro fertilization have you worried about the future of fertility treatments, you're not alone. We'll talk to a patient and her doctor about what IVF is really like.
3: There are now about 2% of uh, deliveries in the United States are from IVF. That's 80,000 babies a year, and that's only gonna increase. Yeah, and if clinics are shutting down, we already don't have enough services.
1: But first, the Supreme Court is considering arguments today in two cases that could change the future of the Internet. And it comes at a time when many experts say our laws have not kept up with the pace of technological change. Those cases ask whether tech platforms like Facebook and YouTube can remove hate speech or misinformation. Kat Zakreski is a national technology policy reporter for the Washington Post. Here's your conversation with Peter O'Dowd.
4: These cases today are about a law in Texas that bars large tech companies from taking down certain kinds of posts, including hate speech, and a similar law in Florida. So let's hear now from Henry Whitaker, the Florida Solicitor General, who is defending the laws. The platforms do not have a First
1: Amendment right to apply their censorship policies in an inconsistent manner and to censor and deplatform certain users.
4: Okay, translate for us uh, here. What is the argument that Whitaker and Texas and Florida are making?
2: So Texas and Florida are arguing that the tech companies are taking actions to discriminate against viewpoints they disagree with, and that that activity is not protected by the First Amendment. They basically argue that these companies are common carriers, much like a telegraph company, a phone company, or even a train company that should be required to provide an essential public service and that they should be barred from any discrimination of users based on what their politics might
4: be. Mm. And what was the case, the original case, the details of it that got us here in the first place?
2: So these cases began... Basically, as soon as the Florida and Texas legislatures passed these laws back in 2021 when the tech companies challenged them. But the Texas law briefly took effect for a little bit. And so we saw an example of how that might play out when there was a situation on Reddit. Basically, there's a Star Trek forum on Reddit. And one of the main rules to participate is that you have to be nice. But one user posted Hmm. calling a popular character a soy boy. The moderators decided that violated the be nice rule and kicked them off. And then we saw that user use this new Texas law to sue Reddit and argue that they had been discriminated against because of their viewpoint.
4: I see. And here we are now at the Supreme Court today. Here's Paul Clement, who argued against Texas and Florida. Let's listen to his
5: point of view. Florida's effort to level the playing field and to fight the perceived bias of big tech violates the First Amendment several times over. It interferes with editorial discretion. It compels speech. It discriminates on the basis of content, speaker, and view- and viewpoint.
4: Okay, so tell us more about the argument against these laws.
5: So the tech
2: companies argue that they have a First Amendment right to decide what is displayed on their services. They argue that rather than the telegraph or phone company framing that the states have, that they're more like a newspaper and they should be able to decide what views are on or off their services. And they also argue that this is a really essential defense against terrorism, misinformation, cyberbullying, and other terrible content because they have a market incentive to ensure that type of content isn't displayed on their sites.
4: Following the details of this case I personally find can be challenging, but what it boils down to is the fact that most of us rely on the internet every day for almost everything. And if the court were to uphold these laws and rule in favor of Texas and Florida, could you lay out what the internet would look like?
2: So it's a bit unclear exactly what it would look like, but you could see a scenario where the tech companies take a far more hands-off approach to moderating their websites because they'd be afraid of getting hit with lawsuits from people who say they're discriminating. So certainly the tech companies have argued that if these laws were to stay in effect, at least in these states, when you were on social media, you'd likely see more misinformation about health issues more terrorism, more harmful content related to children, Mm. and that could be very problematic. I mean, one of the interesting things we're seeing, though, is that the states are moving in different directions. So if these laws were allowed to take effect, we could be in a scenario where conservative states have one version of the internet that's more hands-off and liberal Mm. states push forward with a version where there's more pressure on the companies to moderate content.
4: Could you imagine what kind of problems that would create?
2: Well, so we've already seen, you know, these types of situations where government puts pressure on companies to take content down. That can lead to really broad policies that sometimes take down speech that you know many people would want to be able to hear or see on the platforms. Um, for instance, in Europe, there are hate speech laws that are sometimes very strict about talking about nazis online and that's Mm. intended to prevent hate speech but it also can sometimes prevent discussion about news around extremism or issues in those countries
4: i see and just briefly we have less than a minute here did you hear anything in court today that might give us any hints about how the justices are viewing these cases
2: So I heard a lot of skepticism from the justices on both sides' arguments. It was interesting to see how some of the traditional ideological lines weren't necessarily aligned on this case. Um, For instance, Justice Kavanaugh had a pretty tough round of questioning with the Florida Solicitor General where he Mm. really raised the point that – you know these uh, company that these states are arguing this is censorship, but censorship is something that the government does, yeah. not the companies.
4: Interesting. Kat Zakrensky, uh, reporter with the Washington Post. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you.
1: Coming up next, Nikki Haley lost her home state by twenty points. But that's not stopping her campaign from selling it as a win against even lower expectations. After the break, Celeste Headley checks in with a Republican political consultant on where the primary goes from here. Stick around. Did
6: you kill Marlene Johnson?
7: Former President Trump called his win in Saturday's South Carolina primary historic after he won 60 percent of the vote. But rival Nikki Haley said this about her 40 percent of the vote.
6: He's not going to get the 40 percent if he is not willing to change and do something that acknowledges the 40 percent.
7: And why should the 40 percent have to cave to him? Haley spoke in Michigan, which holds its primary tomorrow. She lost a big financial backer yesterday, the super PAC funded by the Koch brothers, and Democrats, who also want to win Michigan, of course, joined her in condemning Trump's remarks on Friday that black voters can relate to him because he's been indicted so many times. Shermichael Singleton is a Republican political strategist and former Trump appointee who has a show on Sirius XM. He resigned from the Trump administration because of Trump's incendiary rhetoric and temporarily left the Republican Party because of it as well. Shermichael, welcome back.
5: Hi, Celeste. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Thanks for having me.
7: We'll touch on Trump's remarks uh, to black conservatives. But first, you agreed with others like the Wall Street Journal editorial board today that the 40 percent of the South Carolina vote is something Trump should worry about. Why do you say that?
5: Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's not enough uh, to get 60 percent of the Republican electorate and certain swing states and expect to win. Uh, I'll tell you why. Donald Trump has to focus on a hyper um, battleground state strategy, similar to the strategy that yielded him. Uh, the electoral success he found in 2016 against Hillary Clinton uh, fast forward to 2020 a similar strategy projected uh, president Biden to the white house so you look at states like Georgia where the president lost former president lost by a little over 12,000 votes Arizona Nevada Wisconsin Again, two other states, he lost by less than 20,000 votes. Wisconsin, he lost by around 33,000 votes. So you you look at the math and you say, let's say the president, former president can get 60% of the Republican voters. That's not going to be enough based on the data from 2020 to recover from those very slim margins. If he can somehow get at least 15% of those individuals, then I think you have a further and even greater competitive race between the former president And the current president, then you also have to factor in the potential that uh, President Biden may potentially see a decrease in turnout from younger voters. There may be a decrease uh, in turnout from African-American voters. So all of those things mathematically uh, should be calculated. But again, electoral politics is always about addition, not subtraction. Right now, the former president really has to hyper-focus on adding more to his base.
7: Although, speaking of subtraction, a a record number of uh, Americans now say they are politically independent, uh, neither Democrat nor Republican. And you have said and continue to say that wealthy white college educated voters are leaving the Republican Party. Why?
5: They are. I I think you have more affluent voters who are more educated, who are more principally concerned about the United States standing in the world and the Republican Party of individuals who probably would have been classified as more establishment like uh, they're more focused on tax breaks uh, for wealthier entrepreneurs. Uh, there's a bit of disintegration, if you will, within the Republican Party from that class of Republican voter Versus the more MAGA, uh, less educated voters, more blue-collar workers. Uh, they really argue against sending money to Israel to a surprise. That's usually been a big thing for Republicans, generally speaking, right? Yeah. Uh, th- they don't want to send money necessarily to Ukraine. Again, uh, another position for the Republican Party, being against Putin and 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 Russian aggression. You're seeing these new voters brought into the party, more populist, more nationalist. They're very skeptical. Of, of immigration. And in part because these voters remember a, a moment in time in America's history where their place in society felt more secure. And so the idea of mm-hmm. Make America Great Again, that, that slogan, I mean, I know we sort of laugh and chuckle at it. It doesn't really mean much. But for many of those voters, it means a lot. It means sort of a restitution uh, of their standing, if you will, uh, in the past. And more often what we find is that that standing, that remembrance really isn't in sync uh, with more of the establishment view of the party, uh, their view of what the role of the United States should be internationally. And so in many ways, just like the Democratic Party You have disparate voters, and political leaders have to figure out a way to meet the needs and demands of each of those voters. For the first time, I would argue, ever, as the Republican Party has always, for the most part, been a very uh, homogenous party, we're now sort of teetering heterogeneous, if you will, but with two groups versus (laughs) multiple groups like the Democratic (laughs) side. And I think Republicans in the future are going to have to figure out a way uh, in order to maintain the coalition, to keep the glue together, if you will. How do we speak to this new working class base, which represents a size percent of the party, while also regaining the suburbs again, regaining those sort of establishment-like voters.
7: So I don't chuckle about the Make America Great Again slogan, <laughs> and, and that's <laughs> partly because of remarks like those uh, Trump made uh, Friday to the Black Conservative Federation.
5: And then I got indicted a second time, and a third time, and a fourth time. And a lot of people said that that's why the black people like me because they have been hurt so badly and discriminated against. And they actually viewed me as
7: I'm being discrimin- So we have about 30 seconds left here, Shermichael What do you make mm-hmm. of comments like that?
5: It's not helpful. And, and and I think it really plays to caricatures about African-Americans, particularly black men who are overrepresented in the criminal justice system. Uh, Donald Trump is a wealthy individual. He's still running for president. He has the money to hire a plethora of attorneys to fight all of these uh what 91 yeah. indictments most black men can't do that and yeah. so i think he would have been better off saying we need a part two to criminal justice reform yeah. so that black men can also have the same capabilities that i as a rich person have and he didn't do that it was <laughs> we'll pretty insulting
7: till he says that uh, sure michael singleton is a republican political strategist former trump appointee who has a show on sirius xm thank you
5: thank you celeste
1: Coming up, the reality of IVF in America before and after that ruling out of Alabama. That's after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. TeleDoc Health understands whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight. TeleDoc Health can help. Visit TeleDocHealth.com/slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T E L A D O C Health/slash What's Your Why.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get iXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off iXL membership when they sign up today at iXllearning.com.
1: A recent court decision in Alabama ruled that under state law, frozen embryos can be considered extra-uterine children. That has many patients worried about the future of in vitro fertilization, or IVF, which has become an increasingly common way for people with fertility issues to have kids, but which can also be a major strain on patients physically, financially, and emotionally. Belle Boggs knows that well. She underwent five years of fertility treatments, including IVF, in North Carolina, eventually giving birth to two healthy daughters, who are now 5 and 10 years old. She wrote a book about her experience called The Art of Waiting on Fertility, Medicine, and Motherhood. We also caught up with Bell's doctor, Stephen Young. He's an infertility specialist at Duke Fertility Center. The two of them joined Celeste for some straight talk about IVF.
7: So, Bell, you're not just personally familiar with IVF. Um, I understand you also have friends and family going through it now. I wonder what you think is one thing that's misunderstood about this medical procedure, as many at this point are are perhaps trying to think about the larger impacts?
6: Um, I think probably most of your listeners, whether they know it or not, have a friend or family member or colleague who is going through IVF or considering IVF or saving up for IVF. IVF is emotionally and physically grueling. It's expensive. It does contain some inherent risk, but it's it's just such an important medical treatment. I think that's what so many people don't understand about it. It is a medical treatment for infertility, a medical treatment that is unfortunately not mandated to be covered by most insurance plans. I wish we were having a conversation about why IVF should be covered by insurance.
7: Uh, One thing that has come up, especially since this court decision in Alabama, is what happens if someone who is going through IVF decides to freeze their embryos? Now, you did this, although you ended up donating your remaining frozen embryos that you didn't use to someone else who needed them. What do you think people should know about that process?
6: Well, we were very lucky that our first round of IVF produced seven embryos. Mm -hmm. And then we were able to freeze those embryos for a number of years. And so I'm very grateful, but I don't believe that if we were in a state that had a law like Alabama's recent law, um, that my husband and I, we would not have chosen to try IVF. We would not have been able to. We would not have been able to afford it.
7: Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Young... There are concerns, not just Bell's, but lots of patients have expressed concerns about embryo viability and, and how this ruling in Alabama could impact testing for that. Can you explain why testing genetically embryos before they're transferred into uh,
3: someone's body, why that's important to the health of the mother? Well, maybe to give some background even during a natural conception in a younger woman, only about a quarter of the eggs uh, that are fertilized, you know, they call those embryos, will make a baby. And that's about what it is for IVF in young women, say, under 35 years old. In women over 40, it's like one in 20 fertilized eggs will make a child. Mm. And so it requires freezing just to do that testing. And, And You should know also that that testing can be done when a couple carries genetic diseases that can be deadly to the baby.
7: And, and, you know, some of this testing has to be done to
3: lower the risk for miscarriage. Is that correct? Absolutely. So chromosomally abnormal embryos often don't implant, uh, but those that do are most often lost to miscarriage.
7: (laughs) Because IVF is in the headlines now, a lot of people are trying to understand this procedure. I wonder, Dr. Young, for those who don't have any experience with this in their families, what kind of information do you think might be helpful?
3: Well, I'm sure Bell can speak a lot more eloquently about the stresses, um, but I can give you the sort of a background. So it takes about 8 to 12 days of hormonal injections and these are multiple injections a day, to cause the ovary to mature, you know, more than the one egg or two eggs. And then when the time is right, um, under anesthesia, those eggs are removed uh, using a needle and those eggs are placed in an embryo lab. And then they are inseminated with the partner sperm or some cases donor sperm. And then they're grown in the lab for about somewhere between three and seven days. And once those are at that stage, they can be frozen, they can be transferred back to the uterus, and we can also test them at that phase. And those that they are undergoing testing, then we will freeze them all. If they are not undergoing testing, then we might transfer one or we might freeze them all for other reasons of safety. You know, women that are about to undergo cancer treatment that might eliminate their chances of conceiving afterward may freeze embryos and to ensure, yeah. you know, their ability to have a family. And then of course, you know, sometimes uh, soldiers or other people get injured and they can no longer conceive naturally. And again, uh, they may freeze embryos if they are not, you know, at that point able to have children.
7: I wonder, Bell, what, Are you concerned about, especially in light of this ruling that we've been referencing? What worries you about the future of IVF?
6: Well, as Dr. Young was explaining, um, there are so many steps. You know, these steps are very expensive. It was um, IVF remains unaffordable for many people who would like to have it as an option for building their families, um, for overcoming infertility. But I think um, additionally, the idea that someone post Dobbs who doesn't know, I am imagining does not know and reading the opinion it feels does not know very much about the science and the heartbreak of infertility too that these people are making decisions and coming between a patient and their doctor. Um, I never considered those embryos um, in their vials. I never considered them a child. I've spoken to so many women and couples and individuals experiencing IVF treatment, and I've never spoken to someone who use the phrase "extrauterine child" or a cryogenic yeah. nursery? Um, yeah. Because to do this, you 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 know something about the process, and you and you hopefully know something about the science.
7: Um, you've mentioned a few times the the cost of IVF, and it can be up to thirty thousand dollars for one cycle. So, Doctor Young, I wonder what you're worried about, especially as a physician who specializes in infertility. Are you concerned about a ruling that eventually could affect you?
3: Hugely. Um, You know, already a few clinics in Alabama have shut down doing IVF procedures. Uh, This is affecting all those patients who spent their time and emotional investment and money in trying to conceive a family. It's just devastating for them. And they shut down because fear of legal prosecution just for helping people have babies with IVF. I mean, there are now about 2% of uh, deliveries in the United States are from IVF. That's 80,000 babies a year, Mm. and that's only going to increase. And if clinics are shutting down, we already don't have enough services. One of the reasons that, you know, if you look geographically, there are parts of the country where people don't have easy access to a clinic, and it's going to get only worse if other states follow suit. One of the things that just is really impactful on this is that there are good reasons to think we could make IVF simpler, better, and lower cost, but the Dickey, Wicker, and Hyde amendments block federal funding for IVF research Mm. uh, because of concerns over status of the embryo and abortion and such.
7: Dr. Stephen Young is an infertility specialist at Duke Fertility Center, and he was the doctor for Bell Boggs, former IVF patient in North Carolina and author of The Art of Waiting on Fertility, Medicine, and Motherhood. Thank you so much to both of you. Thank you You so much for having
1: us. That's our show It comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Jill Ryan, Lynn Managon, and Ashley Locke. Today's editors were Todd Munt, Micaela Rodriguez, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Caleb Green. Mike Moschetto also wrote our theme music, along with Max Liebman and me, Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carleen Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you tomorrow.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR.
5: Hey there, everybody. It's Peter Sagal. On our show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, it's usually just jokes. But a man cannot live on dad jokes alone. Sometimes you need to express your trauma that haunts you and drives you, as I did on a bonus episode just for Wait, Wait Plus supporters. A deep dish pizza hurt me. That's right. For a chance to hear the raw, real, revealing truth, sign up for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me Plus at plus.npr.org in order to feel my pain.